It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 231, The Battle of Marathon. Now that Brant Frost has got us up to speed on what's going on in Greece up to this stage, um, let's catch up what's going on in Persepolis, which is the capital of the empire of Persia. Um, so we covered Cyrus's death. Um, after Cyrus dies, his son, Cambyses, becomes king. Cambyses actually, he's considered Cambyses II. Um, and Cambyses II, he's a pretty good king. Um, he kind of consolidates his empire. Um, he invades Egypt, and he conquers it. And Egypt is going to become a, a snare to the Persians. Um, it's going to be, you know, what they conquer and what they take, the wealth from Egypt, is going to really enrich the empire, and, and it's going to really motivate uh, the next king, which is Darius, and it's going to give him a drive to push the empire forward. But Egypt's going to become a snare. I mean, uh, further, Cambyses gets ambitious, and he wants to to lead additional armies um, into the desert lands and attack, you know, the remnants of the Egyptians out there. He wants to even move down into Sudan and attack it. Um, he he ver- ventures down south of Egypt uh, and goes to attack Sudan, and he gets... He has heavy losses, and he's pushed back. There's another story of a lost army that's in the desert um, that he sent uh, west of the Nile um, on an expedition. It rumor rumors are or the the story is that there was up to fifty thousand casualties, and it becomes kind of a legend, you know. Did, this lost army of Cambyses did it did it die by a, you know a sandstorm? Did they die of starvation, or were they attacked and and assaulted by the Egyptians. Uh, regardless, it's going to become this snare of the Egyptians um, in the Persians, kind of, you know, kind of the knife in the back, but at the same time, they're draining Egypt of their wealth and resources. And it's Darius who becomes king. So, and, and Cambyses dies. Uh, when he dies, uh, the next king is Darius. Now, Darius isn't his son. Um, There's like three or four different accounts on how Darius becomes king. Um, And Herodotus always, you know, good storyteller. He's got some really wild stories on how he becomes king. Um, Supposedly there's a coup. There's another king of the Persians. um, And then Darius comes on board and he saves the nation from an outsider taking over. Or this, not really an outsider, but um, someone who shouldn't have become king. um, And he takes the throne. And Darius becomes the next king of Persia. Now, Darius becomes king, and Darius is a skilled administrator. Um, he, you know, builds a road network. He, he makes a united language. Um, at this time, the official language of the Persian Empire in this region of this world will be Aramaic. And you're going to see if you watch The Passion of the Christ with Mel Gibson, they're actually speaking Aramaic. It was a spoken language all the way into Jesus' day. And this is something that Darius made official. Uh, he did the road network. 
He did this language, and he kind of standardized coinage as well. And Darius will be very active militarily. Um, there'll be even invasion by the Scythians. He'll have to fight back. Uh, there's actually a rebellion in Babylon. Um, the Egyptians are going to constantly fight him. Um, there's even this this time when he pursues the Scythians extremely deep in their territory, and he loses a ton of soldiers, and he builds barracks and, and fortresses to keep them out. So it's after this campaign against the Scythians where um, he's had enough of the Greeks interfering in his business. The, the, these rebellions in Egypt, they're actually being supported by the Greeks as well. Um, the Scythians, there seems to be some involvement as well, um, indirectly or directly. The, the Greeks are constantly getting involved, and they're a thorn in his side as well. And Darius wants them done with. So he sends a force to attack Greece. And it's near the end of the reign of Darius when he actually attacks Greece. Um, there's something that erupts, and, and I don't think Darius realized what he was getting into. I mean, he, he, he sends a force to attack Greece. He doesn't send his whole army. And it's not an all-out campaign by him. It's, it's the beginning and an eruption of, of aggressive campaign against the Greeks. But he doesn't realize it, is that all these city-states and Greeks in Greece, they don't work together. And they've been fighting each other for years, and they've been honing this combat um, skills and armament um, that he wasn't ready for. And it's when he attacks them that he brings, he causes them to unite into a force that he wasn't ready for. So joining us as a guest speaker um, and entering into this Persian War time frame, um, our military expert of the show, Josh Taylor from Oregon, is going to cover... The Battle of Marathon. The Persians had been expanding their empire at a fast pace. They had forced the Greek cities on the coast of Asia into submission. When the Greeks revolted, the Persians conquered them by force of arms and went even further, continuing conquering Thrace and subjugating Macedonia, defeating anyone who would dare to resist. Two Greek city-states, Athens and Derichia, had been active against the Persians at this time. And the Persian king now sought revenge. King Darius the Great. Now keep in mind that at this point, the Athenians were like a fly that just kept on nagging, more and more annoying. In fact, the great king Darius had his food servant tell him every night, don't forget about what's going on here. Don't forget the Athenians. So he amassed a fleet of 600 triremes and sent it into Greece under the command of an admiral named 
deities. The Persians' first target were the Cyclades Islands, and particularly Max, that had resisted Persian rule. They sacked Max and took his citizens into slavery. Next, the Persians forced the traders into submission and attacked Eritrea. Eritrea was sacked, and its citizens were also taken into slavery. The third target of the Persian campaign was Athens. This time, however, the Persians sailed up to the Bay of Marathon. The fleet moored there for several days and did nothing, nothing. The rain activity had been something of historical mystery. What was going on here? The Persian campaign had taken place in the summer and by July, strong winds had begun to blow across the Aegean and go on until late August. These winds are especially strong in the area between Eritrea and Arctica. The Bay of Marathon is well protected from these winds and it is large enough to provide shelter to hundreds of ships. There's simply no other place between Eritrea and Attica that affords this type of protection. Perhaps the Persians landed on Attica not to attack Athens, at least not immediately, but only to find shelter from the harrowing winds. And why there? Perhaps they hope to get some intelligence about the situation in Athens through their agents. So, they were probably surprised to find one fair day the entire army of Athens arrayed for battle on the high ground. Every Athenian who could bear arms had marched out, and the town of Plataea there had also sent out its armed citizens. Together, the Greeks had 10,000 hoplites and also some slaves who had been promised their freedom that they would fight for Athens. The Athenians sent a runner to Sparta to ask for help. The runner, the runner, Thedipides, whose name means a man who does not need a horse. He ran 250 kilometers to Sparta in a day. The Spartans listened to him and promised to march to aid of the Athenians, but only once their religious festival dedicated to the god of Polos was over. Religious and sometimes very overinflated festivals were taken very seriously in ancient Greece, and to go to war during such a festival was defying the gods. So here is the scene. The Bay of Marathon, and here a Persian fleet was anchored in the bay. The Persian army encamped on the coast, and the Athenians encamped on the high ground near the village of Marathon, by the sacred grove of Heracles. The Athenians and the Persians made sacrifices and asked for omens, but the conditions were not favorable for, favorable for either sides. Consider their position. The Athenians, in theory, had checkmate over the Persians. They held the main road to Athens, which would have been the one going west, and their position flanked the other road, the coastal road. They held the high ground. The Persians, who had perhaps only sought reprieve from the harrowing August winds, had not 
bargained on having the Athenians overlooking their encampment in the Bay of Marathon. They can neither march off at ease nor take to their ships without inviting an attack from the Athenians. Why they lingered on, and comfortably for that matter, under the gaze of the Athenian army? Let's consider their options. One was to attack. But the Athenians had amassed a good-sized force. An attack would come at a great cost, and a frontal uphill attack would be very risky. Another option was to sail to Athens. If their agents in Athens would only open the gates. But to sail to Athens, they would have to sail around Cape Sunion, a full day's journey. By then, the Athenians could perhaps march back through the much and over the much shorter overland route and get to Athens first. Then there was the problems that they'd have if the Spartans showed up. If they came over in a few days time to aid the Athenians. What seems to have happened was that after several days of the intense face-off, the Persians pulled out some of their ships to sea and perhaps made a show of embarking by loading up what some think could have been their cavalry and leave the rest to fight the battle. Now among the Athenian generals was one named Miltidies. He was the son of a famous Olympic champion and a war veteran himself, who was very familiar with the battle tactics of the Persians. Now Herodotus tells us that Miltidies was confident of victory and that if he was so much, in fact, he was so much respected, whether this move of the Persians was a ruse or not, Miltiades could not wait for the Spartans to arrive. He immediately asked the permission of the war council to attack. The Athenian war council was divided, but the commander in chief, a general named Callicamus, sided with Miltiades. There was no time to waste. Miltiades gave battle orders. The hoplite, hoplite phalanx started marching down the hillside, spreading out as to match the width of the Persian army that began to deploy in the plain below. In order to accomplish this, the central phalanx got reduced in its depth of ranks. Traditionally eight deep, it got reduced to just a few men deep, let's say four ranks deep. But the wings remained eight ranks deep or more. Some think this was a clever plan of Miltiades, some kind of strategy aiming at a double envelopment or of such, refusing the center. But it may have only been done out of necessity to match the front of the Persian army. Now. I like to think this man was a genius, so let's go with he did it on purpose. At this period in Greek history, strategic thinking was very different from that of modern day armchair generals. So they were in the valley, and in order for the flanks 
the ends of the phalanx to do any sort of maneuvers, they needed to march out of that valley. And so war between the Greek city-states was rather like a sport and it was governed by rules. All men had the same armor and the same primary weapon, a spear. Using a bow was considered cheating. It was the weapon of dishonor. A sword could be used as a last resort, but it was frowned upon because one might use it to like hack at an opponent, which was seen as an underhand tactic and unethical. Even hacking at the dead was regarded dishonorable. Using a horse, of course, took cheating to a whole nother level. Although at this time, Thebes had started introducing cavalry, no other city-state was willing to bend the rules by this much. On the other hand, to win a battle where all combatants had exactly the same armament, one needed courage, a good drilling in the rules of fighting in the phalanx, honor, and good discipline that came from continual practice. There was another crucial difference between the two armies opposed at Marathon. The Greeks were heavily armored in bronze and iron, whereas the Persians had little armor other than their shields. And these were sometimes wooden shields, and other times wicker shields made of interwoven grass. How and why did anyone think that a shield made of woven grass was a good idea? The hoplite armor, of course, was much heavier, which could be something of a handicap. But the Greeks made a sport out of racing in armor, and on this occasion, that would even be racing downhill. Once the phalanx was within range of the Persian archers, Miltiades ordered the men to charge downhill into the enemy. The collision would have been devastating. The momentum of the downhill charge and the full weight of all the brothers' armor would have sent a shock through the Persian battle line, throwing them off balance and pushing them back, pushing back the Persians. The Persians panicked, especially in the flanks. So the wings of the Persian army started to give. They put traditionally their weakest soldiers on the flanks and the strongest in the center. We are even being told that a thin line at the center of the Athenian battle line was about to break it was either that or the Persian wings give in. What followed is a foregone conclusion. Those that panicked and ran back caused panic among those following behind, and masses of the Persian army probably went into disarray. The Persians run for their ships. Those who could made it set sail, off leaving many behind. Now, it's not like the Athenians followed after them, chasing them, running after them. Let's keep in mind that they just did a full sprint about 300 meters in full battle armor. So they were tired and winded. They needed to take a little break, but they did press on as the Persians were trying to gather their men. And you know, there's these folklores about even a, a Greek soldier holding on to a ship, one of the Persian ships, with his, uh, with his, uh, you know, his left hand, 
and it got cut off. And so he grabbed it with the right hand and it got cut off. So the Athenian, the Greek soldier, bit the boat holding it in place. These are the types of things that were told and still exist today. It's, it's fantastic. So the Persians run for their ships, those who could set sail. The Athenians lost 192 of their citizens. Among them, unfortunately, the general command, Callicamus. Now, this sounds like a small number. It was reported by Herodotus, and officially, when the land of the fallen Athenians was excavated, indeed, the bones of 192 men were found there. Several hundred slaves, perhaps. 600 had also died. They were found, they were found together in a grave with some of the citizens of Plataea who had fought in the battle. The Persians had lost about 6,000 men. Many were killed, some were taken prisoners. Others, in their panic, ran off into the marshes. They were on either side of the battlefield and drowned. The rest who had boarded their ships and attempted to round Cape Sunian in the hope that it would find the Athenians unguarded, well, they were expecting an empty beach. Instead, they gazed upon the Athenian army. Shields and spears up with the sun gleaming off their shields, blinding the Persians as they came within eyesight of the beach in which they thought to land. There was no way to land on that beach. The invaders now turned back and sailed away tucking their tail, running. Athenian democracy could have been strangled that day, but it endured, it prevailed. These men fought not only for their lands and their people, but for the right to be the masters of their own destiny and speech. The Athenian force had marched back to Athens and got there ahead of the Persian fleet. They had covered the 42 kilometers of the marathon distance in full armor after fighting a battle. And by this great feat, they secured a victory. The Persians sailed off. Had the Athenians lost the battle, perhaps there would have been no Socrates, no Plato, no Parthenian, no Athenian democracy, that was a battle that truly made a difference. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Special thanks to Josh Taylor of Oregon uh, for his help with this program. And uh, Josh, I'm looking forward to when you start your podcast as well. As always, feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.